talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Sure, let's do it. Cool, so uh, this is uh, Here You Are, Wassa. I'm, I'm Dino, and I'm here with my co-host. Eric. There it is. And we brought our, our guest back, Charles Hughes. Charles, uh, you're from what university? I'm at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, okay. And you're from where exactly? I I am originally from Wausau, there Wisconsin. There you go. Okay. And, and you were just up here, weren't you? Uh, I was up there in August uh, playing a gig, the Tony Schultz's Tony Acres Farm Barn Dance uh, to play every year with with my band, with a bunch of folks from Wausau and other places. So that was that's always a good time. But that was the last time I was there. And I heard Mike came back, right? Mike Seapress came back, yes. And he actually played the next day uh, at Malarkey's, which was really great, both because we got to hear Mike play, but also, you know, the barn dance has become this kind of reunion for a bunch of us, but we're all busy playing. So we just got to go the next day and drink a beer and listen to Mike play and hang out. So it was really nice. So, so Where's Mike these days? Yeah, he is in he is in Seattle, although he's also uh, wherever the wind takes him. <laughs> he does a lot mm-hmm. of traveling around also and has been made playing music and making making art and exploring stuff and then going back to Seattle to to make costumes and do things for some theater companies there. So he's doing great. That's amazing. So, yeah, we're talking about a guy named Mike Cypress who. I mean, I think it's like every now and then I look at pictures and I'm just like, I don't even know like his hair. I just don't know how that would happen. You know, like, well, he, he never cut it that hair. And I can assure you that it's real and that it's 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 kind of mysterious even when you see it on a day to day basis. So, yeah, because so when just to, to go back in, in the memory lane. So Mike was in a, I think he was in a three-piece, right? The Shaken 78s? Yep, yep, they were a trio. Yep. And uh, they played at Scott Street Pub, and they were they were just so young, and I have no idea how we got them. Do you have any idea how we got them? Me? Yeah. Uh, I think I think they called up and uh, asked for a show. I think because okay. they were, you know, Scott Street, as you certainly know, and as I'm sure you've talked about on the on the podcast, you know, that was definitely one of the big places to play in town. So I think they just, they sought out gigs there and, uh, and they played there quite a bit uh, yeah. over the time together. Yeah. I, w- I absolutely adored them as a band. And, uh, cause they were, it was, it was a rockabilly band, I think, you know, mostly. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know what the purists would think, but for me, I, I, they got their second gig based off the fact that they played, uh, what did I say by Ray Charles? <laughs> and I'm like, well, there you, go. you get to play anytime you want, as long as you keep playing that song. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, totally. it was, they, they were so much fun and they were so young and yeah. uh, everybody was like, we were, we were comparatively, we were so corrupted and they were so innocent. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't let, don't let what they they don't. I hope they didn't fool you into thinking they were all that innocent. But uh, it, uh, you wrote but a yeah, bunch no, of songs, and you know Mike Mike's piano playing. I mean, certainly things like what did I say. I mean, that was one of the things that really that was one of the things that really distinguished them for sure. Right, and you wrote a bunch of songs for them, right? I did. Yeah, the album they put out. I think on that record, every song on there is mine, except one song that Mike and I co-wrote. I mean, it was mostly his song. I just added 
I think I added the bridge or whatever. But yeah, so I wrote quite a bit for them. And, you know, as things happen, of course, they, uh, they, they broke up and haven't played together. But I was actually, I had a bunch more songs that I wanted. Like, I had this, and I was just actually playing around the house uh, a few hours ago. And I was doing some songs that I had written for the Shaken 78s that they, that they have not recorded. And I was getting wistful. I was getting very uh, nostalgic. Where are the other two? Uh, they are, um, well, you know, the drummer is actually the drummer for the band I was talking about, our band that plays at the, at Stony Acres every summer. His name is Chris Jarvis, and he's based in Denver now. Uh, and the bass player, Kevin McCool, uh, he is in Michigan, uh, and he is, uh, he's a doctor. He's an MD. So Jesus. they're both doing well. And yeah, no, yeah, very, uh. Very high tone people, and uh, yeah, I'm glad I get to. I, I saw Kevin not that long ago, and and got to hang out and play music with Chris and everything. So that was great. And yeah, no, I think all I think all are doing well. Cool, Eric. Do you remember those guys? I do. I don't know if I ever saw them play. No, I remember talking to him at various events, and sure. I, I just don't remember them ever being on stage. Yeah, I think one of the. I mean, cool... You and I have talked about them a lot. Yeah, but... right. I think one of the coolest things was back then uh, the 400 block was still sort of in its infancy. Yeah. And uh, it was all the musicians complained that they that no musician ever got to play there, because, you know, because yeah. it was brand new and nobody really knew what to do. But uh, those guys took it upon themselves to rent the stage and, and they ran through the process and got to play on the 400 block on a night all to themselves from what I understand. Yeah, and that was a whole thing. I mean, that was a whole controversy, and I think there was a big article. I don't know if you wrote the article in the City Pages about it or if that was somebody else, but um, but yeah, that was a big deal because I remember he, Mike, ran into a lot of trouble with the city. I don't remember the exact names of the people who were involved in this this hassle, but but yeah, no, and he they totally put that on, and they 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 had the show, and I remember it was a. You know, front page story in the city pages, and I remember they they did another thing that was much less um, controversial, I guess, or whatever. But they did another thing that, that they did an outdoor deal with a couple of other bands um, in the summer of two thousand one, uh, right by the historical society, like that little. There's that little park yep. down, yeah. And so, yeah, they were, you know, they were always great about playing. They played in, you know, they played Scott Street, they played Coral Lanes, they played like the local the local places that one would play in a rock and roll band. Um, but then they were always great about kind of finding those opportunities. And I know that that was always very important to Mike in particular. And, and though, yeah, that 400 block thing, I mean, go, I, someone should go back in the archives. I don't have it still, but that issue of the city pages, it was a huge, he, it was, I can see the cover vividly in my mind of, uh, of the, of Mike standing on the 400 block to talk about this problem. I mean, it was like something out of footloose. I mean, it was just like, you know, <laughs> like 2002 or three or whatever and he had to convince the somebody and i cannot remember the person's name but i mean i think it was all public so i don't i'm not trying to be coy um but trying to convince this guy who was in charge of the permitting at the 400 block that they have to do with electricity or something what's that they have to do with electricity it might have yeah i don't remember it was something with this and and then the other thing was that you know Mike, like, I think that part of what made it finally happen was that it was just, it seemed so, again, it seemed so footloose. It was like 
the guy who was in charge of this knew Mike's dad, and so he knew that, like, he was, he thought that that, he was, like, he knew Mike was okay, and, and, you know, so that's why he let those long hair rock and roll kids play on the 400 block, and, uh, but it was just kind of funny, but, I mean, it was a real marker of the, of the, you know, I think the ambition that the Shaken 78s had to play, not just, you know, to do great shows in bars and other venues, but also, to try to expand the scene a little bit and, and they did they were able to you know yeah, yeah I, we, I we were all very young we were all very young yeah. back then yeah Much where young. were you then well i was in madison because okay. i was in college there but i mean i was still obviously up in Wausau a lot um so yeah i was and i mean i remember they played a couple times in madison as well and they the best the best show for my money that i ever saw them play when i saw them play some great shows but the best time i ever saw them play was they had won they had won a battle of the bands in Madison or maybe I'm getting maybe I'm wrong about that but they had somehow they opened because the battle of bands they won in Madison or something was how they were able to make the record that they made but um, I'm probably getting all these details wrong Michael probably be really you know Michael correct me later but anyway they had a show where they opened for they were at, they played at the Memorial Union in the Rathskeller at Madison um, on a weekend opening for a band called the Junkers, who were like the best. They were a country band. They they had this like punk rock energy. They weren't like a cow punk band really, but it was like this really straightforward country mixed with just this real rock and roll energy. And they were like my favorite. Junkers were like my favorite band in Madison. And 78's opened for them in the Union on a Friday night. Um, and they, I mean, I think it was just the spirit of the night. It was like the best time I ever heard both the bands and, they just they just kicked it and it was a really it was a really great rock and roll night. But the Junkers were like one of those bands that kind of like the seventy eights, the people who were around when they were around and we have their records and the old T shirts we have of theirs that are all falling apart. But but yeah, it was a good run for the Shaken Seventy Eights and I was glad to be a part of it in a kind of uh, you know, behind the scenes way. Yeah, I remember I think they played I'm gonna say it was Tomahawk, but it might it might have been Merrill and uh in what I what seemed like when you bring up Footloose, it seemed like they were pl- playing someplace like underneath a train trestle in a feed mill or some shit like that. And I'm like, what the? Where am I? You know? But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I would not doubt that at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the great things about being in bands, though, right? Is or being around bands is like. You know, this, that at some level, everybody, no matter who you are, it ends up being these sort of spinal tap-like stories where, you know, like I was in a band once that played a birthday party for a seven-year-old at Chuck E. Cheese. Right. Um, you know, and it was really, it really felt great because, like, we were playing and then we had to, like, stop because the mechanical band came out and all the kids ran over to listen to the, like, you know, Chuck and the other mechanical animal band so yeah but i'm sure they i mean they played they played some interesting places but they played a lot i mean they were those few years they weren't together all that long but they played there were a couple and they were all in college right and not in the same city so like they would get together in the summers and when they could and i mean there was one summer where i think they played five four or five shows a week or maybe maybe three or four but a lot so yeah it was yeah they were they were exceptional i really there, there were a couple of bands that uh, the the mark of, of my success was always, did I make it in the band's liner notes? And the, <laughs> and the 78s were yeah. kind enough to yeah, there you go. mention me in the liner notes. And I'm like, all right, 
now they have a gig for life. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. But yeah, I mean, they put out a record, and this all existed before social media, so it was really right. just the power of the three of them. And the yeah, Mike always seemed like he had this large network of people, you know. And I yeah, and I always like some of the bands would always get born out of churches, strangely. You know, like that local band Windsor yeah. Drive, they came uh-huh. out of a church. But yeah. I don't think the 78s did. So no, no, I can tell you with certainty that they did not. I mean, they like they came out of I mean, the where they really came out of was they it was a couple of previous bands. But then, you know, we were all we were all students at Wassa West and we were all involved in things like the Wassa West pop concert and other things. And I think between. Mike's experience in bands and Kevin and Chris having played together in bands. And then just the fact that we all got introduced to each other through high school and through playing, you know, through playing there. And, you know, that was where that was my recollection. Like my first conversation with, you know, with, with the Kevin, with the bass player was definitely back in the green room at the Wassa West pop concert when we were going out. But anyway, but yeah, it is interesting. You're right. A lot of bands form in places like churches and the 78s did not, but they definitely, um, they came out of a couple of other bands that had been around that Mike had had and that, uh, that Kevin and Chris had been in. So, yeah, it was a good time. And, you know, I gotta, I gotta be honest too. Like I, I, this was not that long ago, but it was, I guess maybe a couple of years I just had my like I back it was back in the iPod days, so you know which uh, so actually not maybe more than a couple years ago, but I just had my iPod on shuffle and like the song came on, and I was like, well, damn, this is a kick-ass little rock and roll song. What is this? And it then Mike starts singing. It was one of the songs off the the '78s album, so that was <laughs> that was always a moment where I'm like, first of all, I'm getting old because I didn't recognize what this was, but secondly, right. you know, it 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 holds up pretty well. I think that that album still. You know, I'm proud of the songs on it, and I think they really just they did a they did a great job and played some played some good shows and left a lot. I mean, if they got back together and played gigs around Wassa or a couple other places, I think they would draw a crowd without any problems. So. Oh yeah, I mean, and the other thing that I thought was cool is they took on rockabilly, sort of right before rock, rockabilly became a thing to take on. Right. Yeah, they definitely and they weren't very like I think one of the things that I always liked about them was they were very clearly kind of self-consciously retro in a right. sense, but that it didn't feel like shtick. You know, it didn't feel like it didn't feel like they were all about just like putting on this this campy or over the top thing, even though they did play with that a little bit. I always liked that that they were really serious about the energy and the music and and then they would just have the look on top of it as well. And so, yeah, you're, I think you're right. I think they definitely, they always felt, and I mean, I, it was hard to be unbiased because, you know, I was, they were, cl- I was close friends with all of them and worked with them. But, uh, but yeah, I always liked how they, there was a straightforwardness to what they were doing that I feel like wasn't necessarily even required, you know, because they were, they were good performers. Mike is obviously a really charismatic front man. And I think they could have fallen back on, performance because it would have worked but i think they were really serious about putting forward a sound that felt true to the spirit but also felt true to the music that they were trying to draw from yeah i always i always say the minute i see fringe on stage i'm like well nope you know 
And it was it was like, you know, there was there was some fashion to obviously fashion to what they were doing. But, you know, I never I was never worried that they were going to walk in in chaps. You know, yeah, I don't I don't I don't think that would have ever happened. (laughs) I think if that had happened, I think I would have. had a rather hearty, hearty laugh at that. Yeah. How do you end up at a show where you're worried about that? That just doesn't seem like something you would even stumble on. Oh no, dude! The my my <laughs> snobbery is is huge. Like, oh, I get that. Yeah. Oh no, but there. Look, I mean, it's fair to say Mike was flamboyant. You know, right. like he was one of the more complete fashion packages. You know, they were they were a complete thing visually. And there are there have been some notoriously ridiculous uh, rockabilly camp things that have happened. And I always I always worry that that, you know, that I I'm going to see a band open for somebody else and the singer's going to come out and look like Gene Autry, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's that's not what I want to do. I don't want to watch this, but. Yeah, like I also had a rule that um, if a, if a rock band was wearing flip flops, I was going to make them take them off. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know why. I like I'm just like you can't rock in flip flops. Just you can't do it. Yeah, there you so, go. So anyway, let's let's talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, okay, cool. After we after we talk about our local rock and roll heroes. Yeah. And, uh... Uh, yeah. So you know you're the, you're the music historian now. You're the historian, but you know you you are a music historian as well. Yeah. So can you tell just sort of, do you know any of the history of the hall? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, the, so the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was, I don't know a ton about it, but the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was started in the mid-1980s, um, uh, launched by Jan Wenner, who was the founder of Rolling Stone magazine, and a few other people. And it was very much designed to try to capture and, and celebrate um, the the tradition of rock and roll, which by the mid eighties, there was such a thing as the tradition. Uh, and they started inducting artists, I believe in 1986 or 87. And they, you know, have don't have for the past 30 years, I guess now, uh, inducted a slate of artists every year. Um, there also is a, there are a couple the thing about the hall that I think sometimes people don't get, and I don't even think I understood, uh, 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 for quite a while is that so there's the rock and roll hall of fame foundation which is the thing that kind of is the overseeing body runs the inductions runs the nominations and all of that kind of thing and then there are the there's the rock and roll hall of fame museum in cleveland which is obviously connected and related you know in part because they have a huge exhibit about the inductees but that's sort of a separate thing and 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 it's a really awesome museum if you ever get a chance to go uh, it's really great. I've been there several times, and it's it's always it's always a great experience. And then the third thing that they also have, which has been really valuable to me as a historian, uh, is they have a really wonderful library and archives. They've actually built this amazing collection in the last few years, really only the last decade or so, uh, um, or at least that's how long it's been open, of all of this material and all of these records, not just, you know, records like music, but records of, of musicians and producers and record companies. And they have this incredible, incredible stuff. So as a historian, I mean, the book I wrote drew on some of those archives, and I'm sure I will be drawing on those archives again. Uh, and I really love those folks, too. So 
that's sort of the history of the hall generally is that it's been the, the inductions and the inductees are obviously the thing that most folks know about, although I think a lot of people know about the museum too. Um, but they've been around now. I mean, for the, they've been inducting artists for 30 years, I think, because they started right around the time the, the rule to get in the rule to be uh, up for induction is that you have had to made your first record that was released 25 years before you're nominated. Yep. Um, so they, you know, they, they started with that rule at a point where they could actually have people who had been recording in the late fifties. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of been what they've up to. And, and yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that always causes conversation every year. Uh, and it's always uh, an interesting thing to, to talk about the nominees and to talk about the hall and everything. So, yeah. So, so before we start, um, have you been to the museum yet? I've been several times. Yeah. yeah. So a friend, um, a friend is a curator of a section there, and uh, oh. so I've got I've had a chance to sort of hear about kind of how it all works because museum curation is fascinating. Yes. So what what did you think of the museum? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, you know, it's a museum, so it's anytime you're anytime you're really into something and you go to him about it, you know, you're going to have your list of things of like, oh, well, what about this? But um, but I love it. I think they, they designed it really well. I think they take a lot of, they pay a lot of attention to how they, how, not only how they make their exhibits, but also what exhibits they choose. Um, I love the way that they have started to, so in so the first time I went was in the late nineties. And then I went again and I've, I've been a couple different times more recently and somewhere in between my first visit. And then when I came back, they redid the thing where they, they spotlight the inductees uh, and now they have this really lovely kind of just video montage of just spotlighting each one for about 45 seconds each. And the last time I was there, I actually just <laughs> I had the, I had a, the whole day I was flying out of Cleveland that evening. I had anything else to do. And I just sat in that room and watched the whole thing. So basically 45 seconds to a minute on every inductee. Um, so that took, you know, like an hour and a half. And um and it was wonderful. It was just this, you know, really kind of cool thing. So I love the museum, and I love what they do. They do a lot of really cool events, uh, and they, um, yeah, no, I'm I'm very pro Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum. Yeah, have you been to, uh, what's his name, Paul Allen's Museum in Seattle? Many times. Yeah. Say, yeah, there's actually a really great pop music conference that happens there every year. Okay. Um, you know, a bunch of music writers and academics and musicians and nerds of various kinds get together and talk about pop music. And uh, I presented at that conference uh, quite a bit and I'm actually organizing it this year. So I'm going to be, um, be there again, but yeah, I have been to the museum. It used to be called the experience music project. That's now right. It's EMP. The, yeah. Yeah. Now it's called the museum of pop culture. And I think they changed the name because they, they merged. They, there had been two halves of the museum, one of which was music, one side of which was about sci-fi and fantasy. And I think they kind of merged those together and, and reframed a little bit. But yeah, I really I'm a big fan of that museum too. Um, it's got a different kind of vibe because it's more about it's got great historical exhibits. They did a fantastic exhibit there a while back about the history of like um, Latin American music and Hispanic music in the United States. It was just great. But they also are you know very into sort of interactive stuff, sensory stuff like you can play instruments and do that stuff. So yeah, I'm, and I you know and I'm a big fan of uh, of going there every year in April and seeing all my all my music geek pals and talking music for a few days. So how do you contrast them? 
that's an interesting that's an interesting question. <coughs> Sorry, I just took a drink, went down the wrong hatch. I uh, I would say that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum is more explicitly trying to tell a historical story. So, like, when you go to the Rock Hall, you're going to get a not comprehensive, but a pretty extensive discussion of the last half century of pop music or about 60 years at this point of pop music. Um, and I, and you're going to get a kind of wide variety of things within that. I think that the, the museum in Seattle is less interested in doing that, but it's more interested maybe in kind of creating these experiences, right? The experience music project is what it it was called. Uh, and so they really do a wonderful job. I think of, of putting you in the music in ways that that honor the history and honor different different aspects, uh, but also, um, you know, are a little bit. I mean, interactive is such a cliche, but it's it's definitely got that feeling. I mean, every time I'm there, there's always like people in this, particularly in this one part of the museum, like making beats on keyboards and making drum tracks, you know, and doing all this super cool stuff. So that, I think, combined with the fact that they do some really incredible historical stuff as well. I would say the Rock Hall is more about um, sort of telling the story of the music and telling the story of of this rock and roll era that has extended from the 50s to now. But they're both great. I love going to both of them, and I think people ought to, people ought to check both of them out. I always... Um specifically with Cleveland, I'm always amazed at sort of what I view as just sort of a real academic rigor to the to the curation. For example, they they've hired a large amount of luthiers to to oh. to validate and verify and take care of that guitar collection. Good. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. No, they definitely have um, I've done a bit of work with their with their staff and their curation staff and also their education staff who are kind of running the the programming and things they do, you know, in the community or events. And they definitely care very deeply and they know very deeply. I'm not surprised at all that they have, you know, luthiers and others who are who are advising and maintaining the instrument collection. I think the same is true in Seattle. I think that they um, they have they really, you know, that's the great thing about. That's the great thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or the or the Museum of Pop Culture or the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville or other places like this is that they're fundamentally run by people who love the music and who want to celebrate it, you know, and it's a really great opportunity, I think, to kind of immerse that. So, yeah, I I am a huge, huge fan of both museums. And, you know, given that we're talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I mean, I, I really you know, it's it's a really wonderful space, and I really love the library and archives. You know, the library and archives is open to the public. You know, you can kind of go, and they have a really awesome like collection of books about rock and roll and about music. Um, but they also have these great collections, and you know, you can go like check out. You know, like you can go sit in the room and wear your you know wear your your rubber gloves so that you don't damage the documents. But you can look at like these old photos and. They have like Eddie Cochran's collection of papers there. I think you know it's just it's such a cool thing. It's such a great way to celebrate the legacy. Sure. So then let's get to uh, this year's nominees. Yeah. So did did the voting's not done, right? These are still just no. nominees. They're not. These are still the nominees. The voting. 
The voting will be done in December. I mean, it'll be done by December, and yeah. then the uh, elections will be announced uh, probably January, I okay. think. I think that's what they do. Yeah. All right. So I'm just going to read them. Yeah. Um, so Radiohead, Rage Against the Machine, Janet Jackson, Roxy Music, Stevie Nicks as a solar performer, The Cure, Def Leppard, Todd Rundgren, Rufus and Shaka Khan, LL Cool J, The Zombies, Devo, John Prine, The MC5, and Kraftwerk. I think that's all of them. Yeah. I believe it is, yes. So, if you were going to... So, how many get to go in? Five? Uh, Yeah, I think that's right. So, for you, Charles, which are the obvious five? You know, it's funny, because I don't know that there is an obvious five this year. Um, I think... This is a really interesting slate of nominees, and I think that they are—they reflect, in some ways, some diversity of genre that is important and has not necessarily always been there. I think they reflect an attempt to address the hall's ongoing challenge in terms of inducting uh, non-white artists. I think that there's obviously artists who are on here who are all deserving. I don't think there's a single one um, who I don't think deserves to be in there. Um, I think for me, for me, there are a couple who I, who I think are, I'm pretty sure are going to get in. Um, And it's always hard to gauge because of the way that the voting works. But I think I would be very, very surprised this year if, um, if Radiohead does not get in. And not because they, they're a gimme. They've been nominated before and didn't get in. But I feel like this year they're the only act on here, with the possible exception of Rage Against the Machine, who represents the kind of continuation of rock as a powerful entity. You know, like rock and roll, as we moved on to artists who are coming up in the 2000s or later, there are fewer and fewer who are going to be so obviously at the center of a culture or can be kind of thought of as important, right, in the way that rock artists from earlier eras could be. So I think Radiohead's probably going to get in. Um, I think I think Rage Against the Machine has got a good shot. Uh, hip-hop is, all, is still a problem for the Hall. They have not necessarily... And when again, when I say the Hall, I mean the voters uh, who are not the museum people or the foundation or the nominating committee, right? Uh, but, you know, it's still been a challenge to get hip-hop artists in. And I think Rage is interesting because they obviously have this deep connection to, to, to rock, right, with metal and punk and other things. Tom Morello has become a, a kind of respected elder in the, in, the, in the rock and roll world, which he deserves. So I think they, they're probably going to get in. I wouldn't be surprised if John Prine gets in. This is a perfect year for him. You know, he was nom- this is the first time he's ever been nominated um, he's had a really incredible kind of comeback year with his new album and, and other honors. So I could see the goodwill there. Um, I think Stevie Nicks has got a shot to get in, even though she's already in with Fleetwood Mac. Um, my, my only one who I know for sure uh, deserves it that I would just say is, a, is to me a no-brainer. And that's not to shade the el- everybody else, because I think everybody else you can make a good case. Uh, but to me, the obvious... Is, is Janet Jackson. And the reason why Janet Jackson is the obvious one for me is because she is definitively important in reshaping how 
R&B and hip hop and punk music, and pop music more generally happens in the 80s and 90s. Her run of albums in the from the late 80s through the 90s is just in, spectacular. And the way in which she sets the table creatively for everyone from Lady Gaga to Beyonce to even people that might not we might not think of like 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 Bruno Mars or I hate to say it because of the whole Super Bowl thing, but Justin Timberlake, right? To me, she's just hugely influential. The fact that women right now are at the creative and commercial center of pop music, like Rihanna and Beyonce and others, is is partly a world that Janet Jackson created. And then on top of that, her records are just amazing. They not only are really great in terms of having great singles and great hooks and being incredible pop records, but what she's doing with sound, the way that she and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis as her producers are are, are reshaping the sound of R&B and pop and this sort of mixture of kind of classic R&B soul stuff with a clanging and clattering that in some ways owes as much to what we would think of now as like industrial music. I, I just think she is the one. She's also, you know, so important in terms of the way in which she charts a career as an independent woman uh, you know, she's a songwriter, she's a producer, she's, I just think there's, you know, she's been nominated before and she has not gotten in, so there's certainly a chance that she will not this year, but to me, she's the one of this list that I think, for reasons both musically and culturally, um, I think, I think she's, I think she's the, the top of the heap for me. So Eric, when you look at the list, what do you think? I think that you're absolutely right about Janet Jackson, and I think that I've always had a problem with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because of the rock and roll, right? There's a lot of people that are often proposed to be inducted, and this list is no different, that really don't scream rock and roll, right? And you mentioned hip-hop has always had a problem. LL, among other hip-hop artists, has been hugely influential on the entire gamut of music moving Absolutely. forward and so i try to look at these lists as you know what kind of influence have these folks had on music as a whole i think ll is one of them i think that you know mc5 was huge in in building punk to what it was you know craft work was huge in building industrial into what has become you know even devo to some degree changed the landscape of of uh, artists moving forward and radiohead is an interesting choice because you know you mentioned a couple of times as you were talking about them charles that you know you, you called them artists and i see them as artists more than i see them as musicians yeah Ra a rage against the machine record i know exactly what i'm going to get every rage against the machine record right it's going to be great but it's going to be a rage against the machine record i don't yeah. know what i'm going to get from record to record from radiohead yeah you know, Pablo Honey was wholly different than Kid A. And, you know, Tom York's solo stuff is totally different than stuff Radiohead is doing. So, you know, I think that those artists are so influential in shaping the rest of music that, you know, those are some of the folks that I would think would be key beneficial, key beneficial artists to, to induct. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think that's actually a really, yeah, I mean, LL Cool J is another person who I, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, 
my my big one that I really like for in terms of hip. I mean, well, now we're at the point where I mean, Outcast was eligible this year and was not nominated. Um, we're getting to the point where there's going to be a lot of '90s and even later artists who are actually going to end up being eligible. But um, LL Cool J is one who I think should be a slam dunk, and he's been nominated in the past and he's not gotten in. The other group that I would say is, should be a slam dunk and they've never even been nominated uh, is Salt and Pepper for a similar for a similar reason. Um, but and that's a really great way you phrase it about Radiohead in terms of the way that they are sort of charting new paths. Because that's actually something I think that you definitely like. If you look at the state of sort of guitar-based or even guitar and electronic-based rock music or post-rock, which is a thing, you know, they definitely you can hear also the way in which a lot of the really interesting sort of rock-based music that is going on right now, the experimentation in Radiohead, yeah, totally, totally right. Radiohead is interesting too because the layering goes so deep that I don't know who's nominating these folks or what they're what right. they can hear, but you just you have to wonder whether or not they can actually really grasp what Radiohead is doing. Right. Well, and that's you know that's one of the things about the about the Rock Hall, right? Is that a lot of the voters are people who have been inducted. Right. So that doesn't mean that they're sending in ballots, but, you know, the, a large, a, probably the largest constituency of people voting for the Hall of Fame are people who've been inducted already. And certainly there are a lot of people in that in that group uh, who are going to be have very big ears and listen widely and, sure. and think widely. But it does also beg the question, you know, like what are, you know, are people who got inducted for music they made in the early 60s going to hear something like Rage Against Machine or Radiohead or Janet Jackson or Kraftwerk or, you know, any number of these artists? Are they are they going to hear that as being something that re is recognizable to them as as rock and roll, at least in terms of they know it? And I mean... This is something that I think is interesting to watch, too, in terms of the generations of who gets inducted. There are a couple artists on here from from the sort of 60s and early 70s, you know, the Zombies and, um, you know, John Prine and Chaka Khan and Rufus are kind of, you know, mid-70s, Roxy Music. Like, I guess there are a few here, but there's very few artists who, like, the Zombies are the only ones that I think, I think, and the MC5 who are, the Zombies and the MC5 are the only ones who were recording um, and having hits in the 60s, or having big records in the 60s. Uh, so I wonder, you know, if there's going to be a little bit less of the kind of, you know, the old guard this year. I don't know. Um, what, are yeah. the other what are other requirements? You talked about 25 years. What are the other requirements? That's really, that's really the only requirement as far as I know. Mm. Um, the, the whole thing, you know, this gets back to the definitions and what is the criteria and you know the nominating committee the nominees are chosen by a nominating committee and the nominating committee is um composed of sort of industry folks and critics and musicians and um my understanding is that what the nominating committee thinks about in terms of who gets nominated are they obviously try to think about who is newly eligible or who is recently eligible and it's, it's really interesting this year because I don't know that there are any newly eligible artists this year, um, which is just, I don't know that that's ever happened before. Um, 
but the I think you know generally what you hear are 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 the the big criteria when they go and they meet and wherever they're meeting and or however they determine this. The big criteria I've heard for nominees are uh, are impact, influence, that kind of thing, uh, but also uh, body of work. Um, so they I think they try to find artists who have a body of work that is um, recognizably great or whatever. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with personal taste, but I think they try to sort of find artists who are, you know, celebrated within whatever field they're in <laughs> for what they've done. Cause you know, it's, it, it's, you know, I love all the artists on this list, but you know, it's rare to find someone who necessarily would be into all these folks, but then also impact and influence plays a big part. So like, for example, you know, um, it took them a it took them a while to get in, but the Sex Pistols, right? Sex Pistols only put out essentially one album. They put out a second one that was kind of a hodgepodge, but you know that they were basically they got inducted because of one great album and the impact they had on the culture. Mm-hmm. So those, but I don't know that there are any other requirements. Like I think the only condition for your induction to be eligible is that you have been around as a recording artist for at least 25 years yeah I think, Jim, how about I, you? so if i was gonna yeah it's it's hard for me because i just assume that john prine's going to get in you know like yeah. it's it's just he it's it's his time i can't i can't believe he hasn't been in yet and the generation of voters who would vote for him still haven't died so <laughs> It's not my thing, but he he deserves it. Like he still plays, from what I understand. You know, he does. he's he's yep. been a, a mentor to Jim Carlson, which I find hilarious. But uh, yeah, so and he runs like a really extensive network of songwriting camps and retreats and stuff like that. So he has a he has a large footprint, and yeah, I mean, I think he's going to get in. I think you're right about Janet. I think that. Uh, that the impact of what she did with those records and and it i was wondering do we know if jimmy jam and terry lewis are in on their own yet they're not they are uh, not it would be, well no and they would be inducted if they were inducted there's you know there's a, it's there's a couple of other categories of inductees who are induct who are not who don't go through the regular voting process but they'll get inducted a couple every year. And it's usually like uh, early influences. Right. So they induct people who, you know, are early or, or they've gotten a little bit, little bit more flexible with that because they've actually inducted people as early influences who were around in the rock and roll era, but were influences on music that came later. It's a little confusing. Um, early influences. And then there's a category that's like, that's side side men. I think they've renamed it. So it's not gendered. Um, sure. Basically like, you know, session players, yeah. other folks like, and then I think there's a separate category just for non performers and that's where producers get in. I mean, and they haven't gotten in, but I mean, I would, they, I would absolutely support that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and I mean, they, they tend to choose those. And sometimes I think that they, they pick those folks after the fact based on who's getting in. Um, I don't know, but, uh, but no, they're not in. Um, and you know the 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 other the other two that I would just pull out that we haven't mentioned yet, who I think are kind of interesting because they represent 
air they represent areas of sort of rock music because eric you're absolutely right that like the definition of what counts as rock and roll has been perhaps the biggest question in terms of who gets in the rock and roll of fame um but even within things that i think are normally talked about as rock and roll there's actually some interesting areas that they've not necessarily ignored uh, but that voters haven't necessarily rewarded uh one of them is metal and i mean def leppard is an interesting case here because they're very much kind of crossover kind of pop metal folk and i love def leppard i think def leppard's great uh but certainly they they fit within that metal category and metal has remained something that the hall has has gotten better about but still has some ways to go like i just read something where um you know, uh, Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden said something about how the, the Rock and Roll of Fame is a joke because there aren't that many metal acts in it. And I'm sure he's thinking in part of the fact that Iron Maiden isn't in it. But uh, the other area is is with The Cure um, is sort of goth or sort of indie alternative stuff from the 80s. Like that's been an area where, you know, they've nominations in previous years that haven't gotten in for people like The Smiths and Depeche Mode and Kate Bush. Is it Susie Sui? Aren't the Susie and the Banshees? Susie and the Banshees? Not in. Um, that's a great, that's a great, yeah, great, great, uh, great reference. They're great. Um, but there's not been a lot of that. And kind of connectedly, there's, there also hasn't been a ton of art rock or prog rock. And like Roxy music is not really prog, but certainly the artier end of things. So even within rock and roll itself, I think that there's still interesting areas for the hall to kind of the voters to reward folks. And again, I want to stress the nominating committee has put folks up, right? They've put up the cure or they put up the Depeche Mode and the Smiths and um, metal artists that haven't gotten in and hip hop artists that haven't gotten in and, and other folks. But, uh, but so yeah, I'll be interesting to see this year if Def Leppard gets in, it's their first time being nominated and I kind of see the world where they get in, but I could also see them not. It's interesting. Well, I think, yeah, with Def Leppard, I think the deal is that that record pyromania, I, I mean, I, I think at one point everyone in the world had a copy, <laughs> you know, cause it was ridiculous. The local radio station still plays that. Yeah. Copy. You know, like I think, you know, if I, if, if, it was early in the day. I think I could probably go through that record and name all nine or ten songs. Probably. Yeah, there you go. You know, and it's just oh. that thing where, like, yeah, I listen to that a lot. Like, I know the story of Def Leppard. Like, I remember when the guy lost his arm and all, you know, that the yeah. whole thing. Like, I yep. remember that happening in my life. And I'm like, yeah. okay, you know, that's a thing. And but Totally. But if I, you know, as as a music snob, if I was going to be, you know, a, a dick about it, I think that, you know, sort of LL Cool J is the obvious one as far as being an impactful genre yeah. artist. Like, he is a defining Mount Rushmore artist in hip-hop. You yeah. know, it is, it wasn't, oh, yeah. I mean, he didn't miss on an album probably until the goat record and then and then that was only it was only a miss because he called it the goat record really yeah, yeah. but i mean everything like the the 10 records before that or eight records before that all of them were seminal works like there is from radio to uh bigger and deffer to mama said knock you out to these oh, these yeah. records are incredibly 
powerful. Like I still own all of them on tape and yeah, CD. Right. You know. Yeah. And so, totally. being a hip hop guy, that it's it just sort of goes without saying that there are certain hip hop artists that you know are first ballot Hall of Famers for me. You know. Oh, me too. Me too. And I, you know, I think that. Um, I think you absolutely you just, that you made the LL Cool J case absolutely right, and I you know he is someone who absolutely deserves to get in, um, and I think it's interesting because I think that you know to return to something that Eric was saying and that you kind of just mentioned too, I think that something that is finally starting to happen now that we have you know uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five was the first hip hop yep. artist to get in, uh, Run DMC got in then, the Beastie Boys got in. Public Enemy got in, NWA got... Like, we have a few now. Um, and I think that there is this understanding that there is legitimacy for hip-hop in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, now, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens in the next few years because it is... It's going to be huge. Yeah. There's some exciting things coming down for hip-hop. I mean, it's oh, interesting yeah. to see, you know, Wu-Tang, Biggie, Tupac. I mean, all those guys are coming up in the next few years. You know, and... I, I mean, like if Outcast, like Outcast, I'm, I'm shocked actually that Outcast didn't get nominated this year because it's, and another, another thing that, um, and I'm, I'm more shocked at this. I mean, I love, love, love them, but um, I, beyond that, I fact that I love them, I'm kind of shocked that the Roots, who became eligible this year, didn't mm-hmm. get nominated, if only because they have so cemented their place as kind of ambassadors for hip hop nation. Um, and Questlove is such a beloved musician. You know, I, I was just kind of surprised by that. I mean, I wouldn't vote for the roots. I love the roots and I think they deserve a spot. I wouldn't vote for them ahead of about 12 hip hop artists, but right. I, I tribe called quest is, you know, there's all these folks, but they're starting to be, and I think, and I don't know this for sure. This is pure speculation on my part, but I think another thing that happens sometimes that I think is probably a good move, it's just a sad fact that it has to happen, is that I think that sometimes um, when you see the nominations and you'll see like one representative of a particular genre, um, I think that's in part maybe an attempt to try to get that person in, you know, and not have three hip-hop artists, <laughs> right, or or three folkies or whatever. Right. But, um, so. Yeah, because, you know, it's... Yeah, there's not anybody really to split the John Prine vote like that. If you're yeah, a, if you're right. a John Prine voter, there exactly. you know you're not you're not going to miss out, and he's not going to get you know another somebody isn't going to take his vote. So yeah, but exactly. all right, and, yeah. The one other nominee that I would mention just because we haven't talked about is is really is, is Rufus and Chaka Khan, right. and um, I think that she I hope she gets in. She's been nominated before. Rufus being her band, right, and they're great and. I'm glad they're being nominated together. But another thing with that is that I feel like one thing this year that that is a little bit of a slippage in terms of previous nomination years is that there aren't that many women on this list at all. Um, And it's interesting because I think it may be strategic that they're trying to get more women in because there have been years where no women have been inducted. Um, But it is kind of interesting. and, And I hope that you know, a couple of, you know, Stevie Nicks is interesting to me because I lo- Stevie Nicks is great. I'm not a huge fan of her stuff, but clearly she deserves induction. But given that she's already in with Fleetwood Mac, I feel slightly less of a priority of her to get in as a solo artist. But to me, Janet Jackson and then Chaka Khan and Rufus, like I really, 
I really hope they both get in, if only because I just don't want another, like, you know, set of dudes to make it. And, um, you know, anyway. Yeah, that's right. So then we'll we'll wrap this one up by asking who isn't in or who hasn't been nominated that you want to be nominated. Oh, that's, there's so Right, I, yeah, okay, I, I'm sorry. So you, you only get so to pick two. I'm sorry. You only get to pick two. Uh, yeah, no, there are so many, but I will, I will pick two. Of course, beyond the folks who I've already mentioned, the two names who I think uh, people who really, really deserve to get in who have not uh, as far to well, one has been nominated and the other one has never even been nominated, I don't believe. The one who has been nominated who is not in uh, that should be in is a guy named Joe Tex, uh, who uh-huh. is an Arnie. Yeah, I love Tex. Um, and it's he is hugely influential in, in soul and rhythm and blues. He had hits for 15 years. He charted all of these various subgenres of soul music. His records are great. He was hugely influential. He was very much part of a mix with people like Salman Burke and James Brown uh, and Otis Redding, all of whom are in. Um, I kind of just love Joe Tex a lot, uh, so I want him to get in. Uh, he's, you know, he passed away decades ago, so unfortunately can't enjoy it. Um, and then the other one, who as far as far as I can tell has never been nominated, uh, is Thin Lizzy, who I think. Um, well, I know Thin Lizzy, and I actually just thought of I thought of two more, and I'm going to be quick, but I'm going to give them to you because whatever, I'm going to do it. Thin Lizzy's never nominated. They should get in. Hugely important in hard rock and heavy metal and really great records. T-Rex has never been nominated for the Rock and Hall of Fame. And the idea that we will have glam rock in the Rock and Hall of Fame, which we should without acknowledging T-Rex, is beyond me. And then um, the fourth thing I'll name very, very quickly uh, is, is the band Chic, uh, who are yeah. monumental, wow. huge. Sheik has been nominated a bajillion times. Finally, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, inducted Nile Rogers, who is their guitar player and one of their key producers. Uh, they inducted him in the category of musical excellence, which was very much deserved. And I'm so glad he got the honor because I really wanted it. Uh, he, when he was still alive, to collect it. But the idea that Sheik, as a group, is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is is just ridiculous. <laughs> so I gave you more than two. I'm sorry, I broke the rules. But That's all right. Mine. Eric, can you think of two that, that you want in there? Uh, I can think of two. I don't know if they're actually in there or not, but uh, maybe um, is Nine Inch Nails in? Not yet. No, so they should be, because yes. he's been hugely influential in a lot of different genres. And uh, who's Gurdu? They are wow. not either. They're not either. Wow. Great choices. Nine Inch Nails has been nominated. I don't know that Husker Du has ever been nominated before. So um, you you took one with Thin Lizzy. That was just sort of me. I'm like, I'm ready with one. I have. I'm going to ask the question because I want to talk about Thin Lizzy. But you took oh, that yeah. from me. So and then the other two that I think that are. I was reading an essay recently, and someone pointed out that uh, Black Flag is eligible to to play right. to be in the Rock and Hall of Fame. And to, to be fair, obviously, I have a direct connection with those guys. Um, and then the other one, just again, this reflects my musical taste, is Sonic Youth isn't in the Hall of Fame either. There you go. And they're a ridiculously influential band. Yeah. You know, but then, you know, like, I got to see, I saw Liz Fair this year in concert. And I'm uh-huh. like, well, yeah. that's sort of a life changer. She should be in, you know, yeah. even if it hasn't been 25 years, she should still be in. But then, you oh, know, it has like, been, it has been, be close. Yeah. yeah. 
I think it's actually isn't this the 25th of Exxon guys? Yeah, that's that that's she what she was. Yeah, the 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 yeah. tour was. So she, yeah. yeah, she's eligible, and yeah. she again, newly eligible artist who wasn't uh, nominated this year. And the other one yeah. that I thought, since I since it's you know I get to say it, uh, the replacements aren't in either. Yep, that's uh, right. So it's like yeah, okay. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that you know is that never leaves the car for me that you know you know I like uh, bad religions going on thirty years. Social distortions right. going on twenty more than thirty years. So right. you know, all of these bands are like, yeah, okay. So, get, you know, at the same time, being a child of punk rock and you know, oppositional in nature, I don't want my people to be in there. Like, I don't want, I don't want to see Greg Graffin <laughs> get up there and give a speech because, yeah. you know, or I don't want to see, you know, I don't want to hear the discussion about, you know, which singer from Black Flag is going to be inducted. I don't want to, you know, I just sort of don't yeah, want to have. Okay. The, the never end, like, not to be precious about the musical genres that I care about, but at the same time, yeah, I don't really want someone to deconstruct my childhood, you know, in, in, in the, yeah. the, the way I listen to music as a, as a boy, you know, like there, there, there's music that can stand up. I think LL Cool J can stand up to, you know, the, the critical eye, you know, but oh, yeah. I don't know that. I don't, as much as they are a beloved thing, I don't know that Black Flag can stand up to the critical eye. I just, you know, I just don't. And so, like, I was, the one of the most ridiculously cool thing was watching the Stooges get in. Like, that yeah, was, totally. you know, because... it and that took a while. I mean, right. that, that took a while for them to get in. Right, yeah. and it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay, that's, you know, Funhouse is the, the seminal record of my life. And so, like, yeah, they should be in. But, like... You know, the, the, the fact that there had to be a campaign to get Rush in, you know, and yeah. I'm not even a Rush guy. The only reason right. I like, like, the literally the only reason I own any Rush music at all is because of the first documentary, Beyond the Lighted Stage. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And totally. they were such uh-huh. cool, nice people. I'm like, yeah. I bet you the music is good, you know, because right. they're, they're really nice. So I should, you know, but yeah. So anyway, thanks for doing this, Charles. Thanks, oh, Charles. no. Yo, cool. always a pleasure to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Good. All right, so we're done with that one. So now we're going to do the small, the the three questions uh, about how we how we listen to music. Cool. So again, it's I, I, if we could, let's just focus on the like the tools. Like, you know, I yeah. I'm wearing Sony headphones right now, that kind of thing. Right. So, all right. So we're back. So this is one of the uh, the mini podcasts that we're doing. We've had we have a bunch of people sort of taking part in this, and we thought. You know, Charles is a, is a music guy as well, so we wanted to, to see how, how he consumes music. So, Charles, how, how do you listen to music in 2018? At this point, it's mostly streaming. Um, I mostly do uh, stuff on Spotify. I try to use Apple Music and Tidal, actually, a little bit more because I think they both pay the artists better. Um, but I tend to do that and I tend to either stream it off my phone, you know, my iPhone or off my laptop. And I'm usually either running through some pretty good, but kind of basic computer speakers or, uh, some good headphones. I mean, I still do CDs when I'm like in the car or whatever, and I'll pull out some vinyl every once in a while. But I mean, lion's share of it for me now is streaming in part because, you know, that, allows me to jump around a bit and, you know, go from artist to artist and song to song with a kind of freedom that I 
wouldn't even have with CDs. So what kind of you, – you mentioned that you listen through headphones. What kind of headphones do you listen through? Uh, you know what? Hold on one second, and I will grab them, and I will tell you how, what they are. Hold on. The awkward silence. Yeah, right. All right. They are, they're just Sony headphones. They are MDR-7506. They are called professional headphones. Um, they're good headphones. They're not the top of the line. Are but, they Bluetooth, uh, Bluetooth really or not Bluetooth? They're not Bluetooth. Wow, that's interesting. Just, yeah, and you know, the thing is, I really, like, I find... I find earbuds or smaller headphones to be kind of annoying. Like I'll do earbuds when I need to, but I really love the kind of over, these are big full ear, you know, headphones. And I, I think I like it both because I find them more comfortable, but also because I find it to be more immersive. Um, and, you know, particularly if I'm listening to music on headphones, I want to kind of be in it. So, uh, so yeah. So the, the follow up is how is your consumption of music changed over the years like do you have a do you have a fond memory of you know like when you built your stereo system yourself lots of people have that memory you know or something like that yeah i don't really have that memory but i I certainly have like the kind of technology memories i mean i can remember uh, it's changed i think in the way that a lot of our you know a lot of people our general group it's changed you know i came up as a kid with vinyl and then cassette tapes and then cds and then, and then a combination of CDs and MP3s and stuff and iPods and everything. And now I'm, you know, so much of what I do is on streaming. But the memories I have aren't really of building a stereo system or anything like that, but of getting new means through which to play music. So, like, learning how to put a needle on a record, that was actually a moment I can remember. Because that's not, you know, it's funny, like, it seems so natural now when you do it, but it's kind of a weird little process of how you get that record, the vinyl records to play. Um, certainly getting like my own CD player was a big deal. Um, and having it hooked up in my bedroom so that I could just listen to music. But honestly, the one that really comes to mind for me of being a huge shift in the way that I thought about listening to music was when I got a CD burner, like the, the CD burner thing, which didn't last very long because it was like, all of a sudden you could do it on your computer and then you just had MP3s anyway. Um, that was a big deal because I remember just feeling like it was so liberating the idea that I could make my own CDs and I'd made mixed tapes and other things like that. But for some reason, just the idea that I could make mixed CDs or create my own CDs was just really, really huge because I think I, you know, I'm a, I'm a music guy and I'm a music critic and I'm a music historian. And so like part of my thinking about music is very much about, music and conversation with each other. So that was the big one. And I remember the first time I ever saw a CD burner or ever used one was actually um, at Dave Junion's photography studio in Wassa. Uh, I had had my senior pictures taken with him and a good friend of mine had had them as well. And he knew we were both music guys. So he invited us over to, to, to just hang out on his day off and make some CDs for him to play around the studio. And this was like, that that was like a flying car. Like the, the level of excitement I had at that technological innovation. 
because it allowed me a different kind of way to not only listen to music, but also to kind of create and curate my own things or to just simply and easily burn a record that's, that I like for somebody else to hear. So that was the moment that really, that really sticks out to me. Yeah, that's that's funny because I just bought a new CD burner yesterday. Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah, because so I I discovered that I have or I had or I have 200 blank CDs in my house. Yeah, yeah. You, I saw you post yeah. about that. On and so the, I'm like, well, I'm going to make yeah. ten. I'm going to make ten mixes, and I'm going to send them out to my friends. And then my computer, uh, the CD burner, just because it's a ten year old computer, the CD burner just sort of took a shit. So I'm yeah. like, well, damn it, I'm committed to doing this. So, God, I hope these things don't. And it was twenty dollars. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Oh my God. But like the kid at Best Buy is like, I don't even know where that is. And I'm like, yeah. Just go, <laughs> just go look in the computer. There's got to be like a. a yeah, there's got to be something. Yeah, there's got to be a file system somewhere where you can go find it. He's like, yeah, okay. He's like, yeah, we haven't sold one of these in forever. What are you gonna do with it? And I'm like, just give it to me and go away, child. You know, it was actually the CD burner I had. <laughs> like it was also really helpful later on in like um, recording, like helping recording from when I was making music on a home studio. I had it hooked up to um, to this like digital eight track system I had, sure. and I was burning things like. It, it was huge, and I remember very vividly that CD burner, and it finally died, and it was one of those huge ones that was like the size of a VCR, and, but yeah, that, that was a, uh, that's funny, I didn't even know they were still making them, but good. Yeah, oh, they yeah, like, it's, as, it's just about as big, you know, it's a little bit bigger than a CD at this point, so yeah. Yeah, totally. So Eric, I, I wanted to come back to the, do you remember the year you got rid of your CDs? Uh, it's been sort of ongoing. I mean, I, I think it was when I moved back to Wausau from Minneapolis, I, I had two of those. Do you remember those? They were like 80 cassette tape holders. Yep. And so I had two of those full of cassette tapes and I got rid of all of those and I took a slew of CDs to the, you know, used record store or the resale record store. So I got rid of everything there. And then when I was back in town, I picked up a number of new CDs and I was with somebody that had a, a obscure CD buying fetish. So it was like every day there was a new disc from some European country that cost, you know, $95 that had four tracks on it. So <laughs> eventually all of that sort of stuff went the way of the trash or the what was it? Weeby CDs, right? Yeah. So, so there's there a lot of stuff there. Yeah. And I, there's, a, I'm staring, I'm staring at a bag right now of CDs that I picked up at, you know, some thrift store over the summer because we had a car that had a CD player and I needed something to listen to over the years and just kept buying stuff and, but I haven't listened to them in so long that I just wrapped them up to take the goodwill. So it's an yeah. ongoing process. So, so the reason I ask is because there was a day when we. Uh, I was in the co in a coffee shop and Eric walked in with what amounted to being a suitcase. That's right. Yeah. He, he had yeah. a suitcase full of CDs <laughs> and he like he opened it up like, you know, some sort of weird guy selling Rolexes on the street and he's like, "Do you want any of these?" And I'm like, "I I want all of these, but you know, I don't yeah. know what to do here, you know." But yeah, 
and and for me what i've done over the years is there's a there's a place in madison that digitizes cds uh-huh. so they you know i imagine that it's you know you mail them 50 like you they take collections of cds based on poundage sure like on weight and so i think over the years i've sent about 150 pounds of cds to these guys and what they do is they digitize the collection and send you essentially a USB stick with everything you send them. And I think they then give the CDs to like WORT or Wisconsin Public yeah. Radio. I, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And so. What's the difference between them doing it versus you burning it? it my uh, time. Yeah, my equipment, time. Your yeah, time. My I time. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I've heard of things like that. And I've, you know, I've. I've got a lot of CDs still, and I, I, at this point, I probably only pick up like five to ten CDs a year, which is just shocking given what I used to get. But, uh, but I, I have that same thing. Like I all the time, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna digitize all my stuff, my CDs. I'm gonna, you know, rip them all onto a hard drive. And I've done a bit of that, but it's the kind of thing that it's just such an arduous process. And, um, you know, so. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll I, I think like I've decided it's just not worth it. You know, I mean, I've, yeah. I would just I would pick up a disc at Target or something over the weekend because I needed something to listen to on the way home, and it wasn't anything that was worth hanging on to. I yeah. guess even even just to digitize it and create an MP3 to store right. on some thumb drive somewhere, it just didn't seem worthwhile. Yeah, so for, that's for me, it's, I'll just pick up and listen to a stream. Yeah, for me, it's the opposite. So. Like I have terabytes of MP3s, mm-hmm. you know, like I, you know, but it's, it's the sort of thing where like back in the Scott street days, I would say something like, I'm going to buy every record Johnny Cash ever made. Yeah. And then not realizing that's 97 albums. <laughs> right. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, like making friends with uh, Scott Holt and then through that making friends with Buddy and all of a sudden you know, now we've got a comprehensive collection of everything Buddy Guy ever recorded, you know, right. and it's like, yeah, I, I, my, my thing is I want to keep all of that. Like I'm, I'm ridiculously proud of my Prince collection. Like, yeah, okay. I, well, hey, you, you have a, you have a sick Prince collection. Yeah. I was going to mention that. Yeah. You have just bootleg recordings from yeah. all over the world. Yeah. I mean, I, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I'm not giving that up. You know, just because and then the the because it's so much fun, um, the I have one CD that's a very specific memory and it's it's tied to my dad. And so in the 50s or 60s, my dad lived when he came to America, he lived in Chicago and uh, one of the gangsters, Sam Giancana, owned a restaurant in Chicago called uh, the Villa Venice. And out of uh, obligation, Frank Sinatra would come and sing there. And it was like a restaurant. It was like singing at a supper club. And my father (laughs) snuck in to to go see Frank Sinatra sing and stood on the back wall. And he remembered it specifically. Like he had a very, like, because Joe Lewis was there and Frank said something to him from the stage. And so years, years later, uh, uh, what was the guy's name at Weeby CDs? Mark? Mark? Mark. Yep. Yeah. Mark is like, hey, I've got this live Sinatra recording. Would you want? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And I brought it home and I played it for my dad. 
And my dad just started to cry. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong? He's like, I was there and I can tell you what's going to happen in two minutes. And he was fucking right. And I'm like, yeah, I can never get rid of this CD, you know? Oh, and yeah. And it's, it doesn't oh, even, yeah. you know, like the CD doesn't even go with my CD collection. I literally have it underneath my socks in my sock drawer, you know? For well, what I, yeah. And I think like, that's, you know, that's the thing about any kind of, you know, artifact, right. right. Of, of, of music is that like, the, there gets to be point. There gets to be things where, and I feel this way with CDs, where I kept CDs. I haven't done it a lot, but I've kept certain CDs that I've replaced with like the reissue. That's you know, like the deluxe right. edition. But I keep the old one, and again, I don't do that a lot. But there are a few because it has a sentimental value, and I think that sometimes, particularly in a digital age where we seemingly have the world at our fingertips. I think it's very easy for all of us to kind of get like, oh, why do we have all the stuff? But, you know, I'm I mean, I have I, I still have the original CD that I bought of the Rolling Stones Exile on Main Street because I played it like 800 times. And when I got the reissue, I didn't want to get rid of this thing that I'd had since I was in sixth grade or uh, another one that like I don't even think it works anymore because, you know, that's the other thing about CDs. They turned out not to be the indestructible right. technology thought they were going to be mm-hmm. but i have this like i have this compilation this two cd compilation of parliament um from it's called tear the roof off and it's like a two disc kind of greatest hit sort of thing and it was i remember buying it at walmart in wassa uh when i was in sixth grade because i knew about george clinton because of the red hot chili peppers and because of uh, dr dre I right. knew who George Clinton. So I got this thing, thinking like, hey, I'm going to check this guy out because these two things, like these two artists I love, love him. And it became like my favorite record for like a year. And now the CDs are both scratched. It doesn't play. It's just a compilation. I can find it stuff elsewhere. But I'm never going to get rid of that for, I think, you know, not as not as cool a story as, as what you're telling in that turn, sort of sentimentality. But I think sometimes we overestimate the need to, to, to purge, you know, and the need to just have a digital world. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting. Like I, you know, we have a story with these things that we have in our houses or have in our spaces and, you know, that's not, that's not necessarily a reproducible with terabytes of MP3s or certain streaming services where, you know, but Hey, look, I love it. I mean, God, I, I just think back sometimes, like if I'd been 17 years old and I could have listened to all the stuff with like just instantaneously, I mean, man, <laughs> like I probably wouldn't have appreciated it because it would have been there at my fingertips. But uh, but it's an incredible world we live in now with the, with the availability of this stuff. And I mean, even stuff that's not officially out, you can probably find on YouTube or probably find somewhere else. And God, it's incredible. Yeah, it's the discovery that I miss. You know, it's the, it's the Walmart discoveries. Yeah, it's, it's the Weeby CDs discoveries yeah, that I miss. It feel the same. It, yeah, it definitely doesn't feel the same. I don't think. I mean, I can remember so many times in Inner Sleeve in Wassa, just you know, taking a chance on something because it looked interesting, or taking a chance on something because Mike, the owner, Mike Pista, said it was good, or standing around long enough to have him put it on. Like I remember buying records because Mike put it on 
and I never even heard of the artist he put on. Like the the one I'm thinking of here is this band called Southern Culture on the Skids. Sure, yeah, and, yeah. And they, this album they put out in 1998 called Dirt Track Date, which yep. I just I remember I remember him putting it on. <laughs> like I remember hearing it. And you know, it, can you do that in the digital world? Yeah, kind of, because you can sample whatever you want. But having that experience within that space and yeah, it's it's not gone yet from our culture, but I worry that at some point it will be. And I mean, it'll be replaced by kind of new opportunities to have wonder and awe and all that. But yeah, I still hold on to my old CDs for that reason, among others. That's cool. We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. I remember saying something like, I feel a bit lightheaded. Ah! Yeah, you should drive. Suddenly, there was a terrible roar all around us, and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats, all swooping and screeching and diving around the car. And a voice was screaming, Holy, Holy Jesus, Jesus where are these goddamn animals? animals? Hoot. 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 Say something? Hmm? Never mind. It's your turn to drive. No point mentioning these bats, I thought. The poor bastard will see them soon enough. <laughs> 